Ephesians 4, verse 1, very familiar verses. You've heard them recently even. We're going to go there again today. Paul is writing from prison, and he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, say one. One One spirit, say one. one. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I'm going to pray before I launch. Let's pray. Help us to see, Jesus, that this isn't an option for the super committed Christian. But this is the expectation and the empowerment from your heart over every Christian. Lord, I pray that in this morning, as we gather together, don't just touch our minds. They do need to be touched. But Lord, just recalibrate our hearts on this. Whereas in the past we may have been able to live with certain concessions about our unity with others, I pray you take that option out of our thought. Lord, that we would be beautifully and militantly committed to our unity in Jesus alone. That we would be able to place all the lesser things where they, where they belong. But Lord, that we will fight to magnify your name in our generation And we will be convinced that it can't be done without each of our involvement and commitment to be unified with other believers. So Holy Spirit, you are the unifier. Come. Come now in a very present and special way. Don't just be present, be presiding in this house for the glory of the one we call the King. And in Jesus' name, amen. So I believe that unity is probably one of the most overused and undervalued words from guys like me that are preaching. We talk about it all the time. And because we talk about it all the time, um, we see it as something that we, we hear regularly. And sometimes when the amount of a substance is readily available, the value of that substance goes down. It's the law of supply and demand. The more there is of a material, the less it's worth. And because we talk about unity all the time, especially in recent months, both at IHOP Atlanta and Newbridge Church, um, there may be the tendency in some of us to say, another message on unity, good night, I could be on the lake, I could be water skiing. Listen, the reason why the Lord has your leadership team going after this is because it is the, it is the front door that the enemy and his demons want to walk through in order to accomplish their mission. So when we're preaching on this, we're opening the doors in our hearts to the voice of God, but we're bolting the doors to the activity of the enemy and giving a signal in the heavenlies that we're not going to be a place that welcomes his uh, interference. Somebody said it this way in the the furnace prayer time at 9 a.m. They said, the Lord is moving and the devil is, is wanting more attention. Like a spoiled child that is being neglected, wanting attention. And that's what the enemy likes to do. He likes to make sure that we get our focus off the one he hates and get our focus on lesser things. And so messages like this, are uh, they're crucial. we're, We're passionate about this. And we want all of you who comprise this mission base 
to have that same commitment, not just verbally, not just theologically, but functionally and volitionally, that we will commit to being a, 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 a community of believers that not only operates in unity here, but exports it out of this place and into those other realms where we spend most of our, our day. So let's talk about these four aspects of unity that I want to give you. I'm going to move a little quickly, and I'm going to hunker down in a couple of places, but listen quickly because I'm going to talk quickly this morning. Let's begin in the, in the uh, council room, in the heart of the Lord, and let's talk about eternal unity from these verses that I just read, and then we're going to move into 1 Corinthians 12. First of all, look at unity's high call. Paul gives us unity's high call. And he says it beautifully under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you. That means I plead with you. I am heartily encouraging you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Paul, in essence, is saying to the church at Ephesus, and by application to me and to you, Paul's saying, I'm sitting in jail. I would love to be connected with you physically. I would love to be in your presence. I would love to be united with you in a way that isn't just spiritually, but I'm a prisoner of the Lord right now. You guys are on the outside, so I'm going to call you to do something with each other that I can't do with you because of my chains. I'm going to call you to walk with each other in a manner that is worthy of your salvation. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you've been saved. You've been redeemed. You've been received that effectual call. You've been quickened under the gospel. You've been made alive under Jesus. You've placed your faith in him. Your sins have been wiped away. You are established in the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to live like one of those people. He's sensing something at Ephesus, and most of his letters had some element of correction because he's a pastoral heart. He's an apostle with a pastor's heart, and he's saying to you, I want you to remember how you conduct yourselves among yourselves. It is in a high call, unity's high call is always over our lives. That's why when I prayed a moment ago, I felt compelled to just to say my prayer, Lord, help us to think that this isn't, help us not to think that this is an option for the super Christian, for the extra sanctified. For the bionic believer, help us, Lord, recognize that this is a call that is on all of us based on one thing alone, that Jesus died and rose for you and has set you free. And he has grafted you into the body of Christ. You're part of him. And so, Lord, help us to remember that this calling never leaves us. It's a high call. It is a call that carries with it spiritual and lasting dignity. It is a call that is observed from the highest authority in the land who died that we might be one. And that call never comes off of our lives, not for a moment, not when we're disappointed, not when we're frustrated, not when we're discouraged, not when we've been treated wrongly. But it is always abiding over us. Why? Because it's coming down from the throne from the very one who paid the price that we might be unified. But it's not just the high call. It's a humble call. Because right now we've just kind of left it up in the heavenlies, but Paul is wise enough, and he says, and let me tell you what it's going to look like when you're answering this call. Look in verse 2. It's the humble call. He says, with all humility, with all gentleness, with all patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, we've touched on these verses in recent weeks, so I'm not going to give you this big, long original language study, but I do want to highlight a couple of things. We're called to do this in the highest degree. It's not just be humble, it's live with all humility. 
It's not just, hey, throw out some patience now and then, but live in all patience. That all attaches itself to the following nouns, the gentleness, the patience, the humility. And when we're talking about this humility, it is a proper self-assessment. You do realize that like in heaven, nobody struts, right? Nobody's strutting in heaven. Nobody thinks more highly of himself than he should or herself, and everybody has a proper assessment of themselves in heaven. The amazing thing is, is they're not really focused on themselves at all because they're caught up in the glory of the one who is seated on the throne. So they're no longer about themselves. That's been eradicated from their their DNA. But here on earth, we're called to actually put it to death ourselves. How many of us have prayed, oh, Lord, humble me, humble me, humble me? And then we read in the Bible, and we find out God's word says, no, you humble you. You humble yourself. By the way, if you don't, he will, but he invites us to go ahead and take care of the process. And so we're to walk with each other with all humility. It just means I know who I am, I know who I'm not, I know where my place is, and I'm, I'm not the, the, the center around which everything orbits. It's, it's kind of a cliche phrase, but listen, it, it's not about you and it's not about me. It never was and it never will be. It's just not about us, and yet, do you realize, I hope you do, I hope I'm not the only one in the building that might occasionally struggle with this, sometimes we can take a situation that's leaning out of our favor, and we can lasso that thing and bring it in because we want it to be about us in that moment. And in those moments, we're not acting in all humility most of the time. It speaks of gentleness, and that just means a, an appropriate mildness with others. Um, so every now and then I'll, I'll go to shop. Amy will text me. She'll say, hey, I'm not up to it today. Can, can you go to stop by the grocery store? And I'll say, yeah. And I know I look Irish, but I love Mexican food. I love me some spice, some picoso, amen? And so I like that. And so when she tells me to get salsa, I understand that my kids and Amy prefer medium. But I sit there and I just kind of linger in front of that little place. And I'm like... I want the one with the fiery red pepper on it, with sparks shooting off at it, and just boom! That's just kind of the way I'm wired. So I like things ratcheted up a notch pretty much in everywhere in life. But in this, in this arena, it, it's telling me, it says, Jeff, don't go for the hottest flavor of yourself when you're interacting with other people. You come in mild. You come in gentle. You're not to be the one that has the, the flaming uh, Scoville scale or whatever it is where, you know, it's just burning. That's, that's not what we're called to do. We're actually supposed to interact with each other in a way that doesn't singe the people we're doing life with. It's the gentleness. With patience, I don't have to preach that. None of us have it perfectly, but we all know, where we, you know what's expected of us. But it, it is. It's speaking of the endurance of dis- discomfort. The Bible actually commands us to endure the discomfort that we bring upon each other. It means we don't walk away. Why? Because we're unified in the Spirit. So when somebody makes us uncomfortable, it is not an option to bail. It's an option to get low and to be humble and to be gentle with each other. And we're to be motivated by this as we bear with one another in love. So it's a continual process. You ever feel like you're the one always giving? Y'all, some of y'all are just liars. <laughs> you just need to repent, man. Come on, I'm not setting you up. Just engage with me here. Sometimes you feel like you're the, I'm the one who's always giving. I'm the one who's always bending over. I'm the one who's always uh, humbling himself. And it's time for her to humble herself and that kind of stuff. And, and the reality is, is you'll never give an answer for the other person's behavior, but you will give an answer for yours. And so what I want to do is I want to honor the Lord now so that I'm not embarrassed then before him and and it just talks about that enduring process and it just simply never ends 
Are you encouraged yet? Because this doesn't sound overly encouraging yet. Okay, we'll get there. It gets, it, it, but listen, there's a point to all of this. It's not behavioral modification. It's not some legalistic celestial judge saying, change your behavior, change your behavior, without some kind of, of context to all of this. See, there's a beauty that is only birthed in this unity, and the Lord wants us to experience the beauty of his presence through unity, and therefore he's calling us to be aware of the fact that unity doesn't happen on accident. Your flesh will never promote unity, never. Never. It'll produce a false harmony, but it'll never produce spiritual kingdom unity. So a little bit further, verse number four. Uh, Actually, verse number three. Unity's hard-working call. So it's a humble call, a high call, and a hard-working call. Yeah, I'm addicted to alliteration. Get over it. Here we go. Hard-working call, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is the part that got me years and years ago because I was spiritually groomed in fundamentalism. And everything was dogmatic and everything was about, you know, scorekeeping. And there's a lot of legalism that kind of breathed in and breathed out for many years. And I I was trained to separate from people that were different than me in certain of the peripheral issues of the kingdom. And so I was trained to build walls. So if you didn't worship to the music I worship to, you didn't look like me. If you didn't carry the Bible translation that I was trained is the only Bible translation that God can, can bless. And, and I was literally taught, unfortunately, you know, in my early, tw- in my mid-20s, separate from those people. And so I did, you know, and then I started reading my Bible. I actually just started reading the Bible. And I started seeing all these things that were like, oh, man, the, the counsel I'm getting is actually opposite of what the Bible says. Because the Bible tells me here, I, I, I take it personally, verse 3, Jeff, you be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And when it says be eager to maintain it, it literally means zealously guard unity. Now watch this. Every single believer, especially as we're doing life together and in the context of of a local assembly, every single one of us has this command from the captain of our battle. He says, I want you to zealously guard the unity. Zealously guard it. So then I have to think, okay, how am I working through that? How do I either build unity or, or, or weaken unity? Well, uh, one of the ways is with my words. I'm either going to promote it or I'm going to start chipping away at it. In other words, maybe sometimes it's just the attitude because we, we, we're pretty good at keeping our mouth shut. But you know, like if you keep that attitude in you of, of divisiveness or superiority or a critical spirit, you don't have to say much. It just kind of oozes out of your pores. I mean, it just kind of, you give off a fragrance sometimes, and even that kind of thing can just kind of sour it. And so we're told here, instead of giving way to a, um, a process of your flesh dictating the level of unity that you're facilitating, instead, be eager. Make sure you're building unity. Make sure, be zealous about it. Don't treat it as an hors d'oeuvre or a side dish, but an actual part of the main entree when we're doing life together that's got to be a part of the dna of this house let me tell you why friends we're growing obviously you can look around and see numerics we've got added a service uh, for some of you that never had a wednesday we've got a wednesday for some of you that never had sunday night we've got a sunday night you see all these faces you don't know we're all different and by the way god likes that we're not supposed to look the same act the same and, and 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 have all of the peripherals lined up by the way that's not unity that's uniformity 
Uniformity is, we're never commanded to, to enter into uniformity. That's, that's control, that's mimicking, that's parroting. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to bring ourselves with all of our beautiful differences, and yet we lay them down intentionally where they're needed to be laid down, that we might exalt the head, that we might make much of Jesus together. Now, I'm going to break this out in just a moment a little bit longer, but why do we do this? Because we want to reflect the reality of heaven while we're here on earth. What am I talking about? Here's the heavenly call. This is what, the way heaven sees things. We're not going to have a business meeting to vote on whether or not this is so. I'm not asking, will somebody make a motion that we approve this? I make the motion, I second the motion, all in favor, say aye. We're not going to do that. Why? Because it's in the Bible, it's already been settled. What we're called to do is align ourselves with it. So let's look at it. Don't let this be a Hallmark card. Let this be spiritual reality that God is imparting to us. Verse 4, unity's heavenly call. There's one body. That's a reference to the church. There is only one church. There is one spirit. There's not a Baptist Holy Spirit, a charismatic Holy Spirit, a Presbyterian Holy Spirit, an Episcopal Holy Spirit, and so on and so on. There's just one spirit, one spirit of God. And we are called to the one hope. What is the one hope? The glory of God on earth. The one hope that drives us is the return of the Son of God where every eye will behold him, every knee will bow, every tongue can confess. But the hope that we have is not just that we'll have a better life. The hope that we have is not even that we'll go to heaven one day. The hope that we have is for the ultimate universal glorification of the Son of God who is Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what our hope is. And so when we're motivated with that one hope, it changes the way we deal with the peripheral, quote-unquote, little stuff. But it says we're called to that one hope, and it belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. This is... Um, I'm going to say this, and, you know, I think we'll probably be okay with it in here. Other people on media streams may, may question this, but I am, like, anti-denominational. I am. I'm not just non-denominational. I'm anti-denominational. And listen, it's not because I think I've got all the answers. I, I'm in the process of growing and learning and being schooled by both the Word and the Spirit, too. It's not an arrogant kind of thing. But the, if you understand what a denomination is, a denomination is a portion of a whole. That's what a denomination is. It's a portion of of a whole. We do it with our currency. Our currency is counted out to us in various denominations. But the dollar bill is the representative whole, the American dollar in the United States. And so denominations are different kind of manifestations of the whole. I don't want to do life that way, especially when God, 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 Papa, Abba, Father, looks down and he says, yeah, there's not 60,000 churches you, do you know that there's 60,000 de uh, denominations that are represented in the world today? I mean, I just see Gabriel looking up in heaven. He's just like, it's like, don't they know there's one church? Don't they read their Bible? And so I think about that. I think about poor Ezra. I'm yelling this morning, and he's like, I'm out of here. I'm done. There's one Lord, one faith, one spiritual baptism, all of that. The Lord is helping us to keep things simple but it's something in the carnal hearts of man that says we don't like it simple. And we touch it for centuries. And by the time we're done touching it, you can't even see what the original was because it's got all our nasty little fingerprints on it. 
And I believe part of Reformation work, by, and if you're, in, if you're here today, if you're in with us here today, you are part of a, a Reformation work that the Lord is doing. It's not that just your leaders had a great idea to reform the church. We just stepped into what the Lord was doing because he's calling us back to the organic oneness of our heavenly calling. And so what we're doing is, yes, we're going to come off a little pugnacious from time to time because we want to fight the spirit of the age that tries to uh, denominate the church. And listen, can God work in denominations? He can and he does. I'm not saying that those people just don't have anything to offer. What I'm saying is this. I'm saying it's not the ideal that God, it's not the dream of God that his people will be fractured and fragmented all over the world. I've been told enough times when sharing the gospel by some very observant non-believer, they will say, hey man, when y'all learn to get along with each other, I might listen to you about your Jesus. I've had that happen to me a bunch, man, and I'm like, I can't argue with them. You know, all you can do is try to get them to get steered off of us and onto the Lord, but sometimes they can't because all they see is us as the representative of the Lord's, and we're better known for our feuding than our unity. And so each one of us has a part to play in that. Listen, consecrate your tongue to Jesus. I mean it. I mean, I am dead serious. Do you know what I've done? I feel like this is part exhortation, part confession. But I, I have taken olive oil more times than I can count. And I will get it on my fingers. And I will stick out this tongue. And I will consecrate my tongue unto the Lord. You're laughing, but I have to. I have to. And, and the reality is why? Because probably more than anything about my life, my tongue reveals what I believe about God. Not just in the pulpit, but everywhere we go. And so we can exalt the glory of God and, 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 and intensify the manifested unity with our tongue, or we can undermine it. I'm, I'm going to resist the urge to go off on a trail and make this message about the tongue because it's really not. But listen, there's no anointing for the gossip. There's no unction for the murmurer and complainer. And I had to go through a season in my life where I was dissatisfied with just about everything that was going on around, around me. And Holy Spirit just spoke to me one day. And he knew what was going on in my heart. And he said, why don't you try asking Jesus to bless that complaint you're about to give? You try it. The complaint dries up. Doesn't mean there aren't times where we need to discuss difficult things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about a complaining spirit, a murmuring spirit, and it tears down the unity. But on the other hand, when we bless others, when we edify others, when we speak life into others, when we prophetically build up and exhort and encourage one another, there's something galvanizing about that in the unity of the body of Christ. Second point, if you've got a Bible and you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 12, you can. Uh, The verses will be up on the screen with my points. But let's move beyond the eternal unity, the kingdom as God sees it. And let's get down in some brass tacks and let's talk about how we we move in and out of our our secure covering. Because when we're talking about positional unity, we're talking about a security under a covering that God gives. So I'm not going to read the passage first. We'll just go through three, three or four verses of it. But 1 Corinthians 12, 12 reminds us that you and I and all other believers everywhere in the world for all ages, we are intertwined 
individuals. We're still individuals, but we are intertwined. Again, this is how God sees things. For, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are still one body, so it is with Christ. So Paul is saying, hey, think of your physical body. In a whole and, and well physical body, you've got multiple parts that keep everything going. Jesus, in this metaphor, is the head. He is the head. We are the body of Christ. And so the body has typically two arms, typically two legs. There are, uh, there's a digestive system, an endocrine system. There's a, uh, a circulatory system. We have all of these different parts. Some are manifested. You can see outwardly. Some are hidden, either by, clothings or by uh, clothing or by your skin. But we, are a, we carry a body that is functioning all of the time with different parts doing their job to facilitate the design of that body. And then Paul just says, that's the way it is in the church. We are one body. Everybody in this room that is born again, having trusted in Jesus Christ, having confessed that he is Lord, repenting of sin, receiving him by faith as the Lord of their life, trusting that he died for their sin, rose again on the third day. Those of you that have said Jesus Christ is Lord, you were placed, you were baptized into the body of Christ. And you share a positional unity with every other person that is in the body of Christ, both presently, both in the past, and in the future. That's the way God says it. That, that literally, we are united in, on such a mind-blowing uh, level. And the Lord says that you are one, even though you are you. You have your individuality. I'll cover that in a moment. But you are part of a something much bigger than you as an individual. The Lord has seen fit to birth you into a kingdom, which means he has attached you or baptized you into a spiritual body. So our unification, friends, is not on the way we look on the outside. It's, it's not on our internal preferences. You're allowed to have your preferences. You're absolutely allowed. You do have them. If you weren't allowed, you would still have your preferences, but you are allowed. We are not unified by the way we worship, when we worship, or where we worship. Some of you won't like this, but that's okay. You're not unified by whether you were dunked or sprinkled. You're not. You're just not. Um, we're not unified by how we vote every four years. Remember that, November in the next election, when some of you turn into fanatics on Facebook. Just, that's not what unifies us. As a matter of fact, that's what kind of fragments us. Because we make more about our, oh Lord help me, make more about our political differences than our kingdom unity. Better get to a little bit sturdier limb here, hold on. Look in verse 13. We are immersed by the Spirit into an equalizing oneness. I like the way that flowed. We are immersed by the Spirit into an equalizing oneness. For, verse 13, for in the Spirit we were all baptized into one body. And then he gives the main demographic distinction of his day. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. I love what Paul does. Paul goes for the jugular. He takes the, the things that most divided people in the Roman Empire, and especially in the context of Christianity. 
He says, it doesn't matter if you were a Hebrew when you met Yeshua, the Messiah, or whether you were a Gentile who met Jesus of Nazareth as the Savior. It doesn't matter what you were then because now what you are is your brother and brother, brother and sister, sister and sister. You are one together in Christ. And so he literally addressed the elephant in the room because there were social differences between Jews and Gentiles. There were worship differences between Jews and Gentiles. There were cultural differences, traditional differences. And Paul says, that's all good and well, but let me just go ahead and speak over that. Y'all are one. And he does the same thing with the slave or free that had the different social status. He says, you're all one. He says, you were baptized into one body. You were placed in by the Spirit into the body. You were immersed into the body by the Spirit. And then he says this, and you were made to drink of the Spirit. I like that because it gives the picture of us being placed into the Lord and the Lord being placed into us. Let me give you an illustration. Some of you heard this before. So recently they were doing a um, an aerial search in the oceans looking for wreckage of a fairly well-known doomed aircraft that crashed about, I think, two years ago. Um, and they never did find the plane. But as they were looking and they're doing the infrared on the bottom of the ocean, they found two large ships from the 1800s. And these ships had been sitting there undetected. They, best they can tell, they're from the late 1800s. And I thought about that submerged ship on the bottom of the ocean floor. Is it in the water or is the water in it? It's both. Now, we're not sunk, but we have that same dynamic. We are immersed in the Lord, and the Lord is alive in us. What am I trying to say? So you can say it however you want, but you are intertwined in him. You are in him, he is in you, and you're in there with everybody else. Why am I, why am I belaboring this? Because I'm, I'm, I'm seriously calling us to realign our thinking. When the enemy is tempting us to focus on our differences, especially if they're negative differences that kind of, you know, get under our skin a little bit, all he's trying to do is to break us away from the bigger reality that we are now one and we will always be one people, one body. And that equalizer is the Holy Spirit. And so that's why we don't posture in the kingdom. That's why we don't strut in the kingdom. That's why we don't walk around on the, on the converse with our head hung low and our shoulders slumped in the kingdom because we're not as good as so-and-so. The Holy Spirit's the great equalizer. And brothers and sisters, listen, one of the joys for me, this is a little pastoral counseling one-on-one, well, uh, the, one of the joys of, of being a believer is you not only get to learn who God is, but it's important to him that you get to know who you are. He actually made you. He doesn't want you to go around perpetually ignorant about who he's made you to be. How can you glorify him if you're constantly dissatisfied with yourself? And how can you glorify him if you're constantly overinflated about yourself? It's just a joy to come into the presence of Papa and over the years learning who he has made you to be and you don't obsess over what he's not made you to be. I'm about to get happy in here and I hope it's not by myself. Yeah, as a matter of fact, let, let me just get to this. Um, yeah, matter of fact, let's just go down to missional unity. Still in 1 Corinthians 12. L listen to what the scripture says in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 12 regarding how we fit in the kingdom for the purpose and the mission that God's given us. Excuse me. 
God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. God, verse 24, God so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all members suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And then he reminds us in verse 27, now, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Why is any of that important? Well, in the previous verses, Paul had given the illustration of the body of Christ with a human body. And he had said those famous verses about the body not consisting of one part. If the whole body was an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body was a, um, a hearing, where would the smelling be? Something like that. And, and then he gives you this kind of strange um, dialogue between the parts of the body. And the body's saying, well, I'm not a hand. Or the foot saying, I'm not a hand. I'm useless to the body. And the hand saying, well, I'm not an eye. What value do I have? And Paul is applying that to us. Coming to the place where you know who you are in the kingdom, part of knowing who you are attaches itself to knowing why you are. What does he have you here for? And if all we do is obsess over what we're not, and we are so enamored in American culture with Christian superstardom, it's so sick. I mean, it is so anti-Jesus. And we look at the, the awesome vocalist and the killer musician and the anointed teacher. And we think, yeah, I don't have anything to offer because I can't play, I can't sing, and I can't teach. That's a fragment, a tiny little fragment of the kingdom. Just in case we forget, most of the kingdom goes on outside of this room both in time and in breadth. Most of it goes on outside of this room, and yet we're so addicted to watching the kingdom that we, that we look and we're like, oh, that, that must be the kingdom up there on Sunday mornings for two hours, and I don't do any of that stuff, so I don't have anything to offer to the kingdom. I was sitting there in worship today. I don't know what was going on on the front row. My, my sweet little wife, she just got a little <laughs> spiritual laughter going on. There was a joy hitting the front row. It was great. Yeah, some people, it's okay, guys. She's not going to elevate or levitate or anything like that. <laughs> not today anyway. But, but I, I got hit with it too because all of a sudden I just, I just felt compelled in my heart just to say, I didn't come here to watch today. I didn't come here to watch. Don't watch the kingdom. Watch the football game. But don't watch the kingdom. What am I saying? Is that means that we're all, we're all essential in the sense that if we're one body, if one part doesn't do what it's supposed to do, then it hinders the other parts of it. I'm trying. I'm trying, brother. Hey, the Guinness Book of World's Records for a person walking on her hands was by a British lady named Sarah Chapman who walked on her hands for eight hours. Eight hours. Why she did it? I don't know. Probably to get in the Guinness Book of World's Records. But let me tell you why, she, why we, we're stunned by that. Because we know that hands aren't for walking. Yeah. And while you're walking on your hands, guess what isn't happening? The things you're supposed to be walking on, your feet, aren't doing their job. And a lot of times in church, we, we, we just kind of run so many people through ministry that we don't stop to thinking, actually, she's a foot. Why is she walking on her hands? Yeah. 
She's not meant for that. She's meant for this. And yet we, we fill in gaps not according to the way the Lord has wired us. But when unity hits, when unity hits a body, we come into this beautiful paradigm, this beautiful reality that we don't feel compelled to be who we're not to be and to do what we're not to do. It doesn't mean we don't serve in urgent situations wherever we can, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that God has uniquely fitted you to, to work for his glory, to worship and to work. Hiddenness and hard work is part of our value system. And so we want to be hidden and we want to worship, but we also want to do those things for which we were created. And so when, when that takes place and we're all doing it together, awesome ministry takes place. And awesome fruit is born. Let me say this and before I move on. I, have, I'm, I know what time it is, and I care a little bit more now. But <laughs> when, when we're talking about how God uniquely places everybody in the body, I mean, let's don't gloss over that. He chose when you were born, the generation in which you would be born again. He chose the gifts that he gave you and the gifts he withheld from you. He chose the local assembly he would attach you to so that you could work with all the other people he assigned to that local assembly because he doesn't make mistakes. And so the beauty of a local assembly is, is that God has in the present moment everything he needs to accomplish his will in the present moment. Now he may add people to it because his will is going to expand. But listen to me on this. This is important because we talked about self-examination. Part of unity gets clouded when you know who you are and you know who you aren't but you're looking around at the other people who don't share your passion, and you're thinking, well, if they were right with God, they'd be doing what I would be doing. They would be, I, I am challenging you this morning. I'm not trying to be subtle with it. That, 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 okay, well, I mean, if they were really walking with the Lord, they'd be grooving in what I'm passionate about. But they're all, it's like the evangelist is always frustrated with the discipler. The discipler is always frustrated with the mercy ministry person. And instead of just stepping back and saying, I don't have any one of her gifts, but man, I'm glad she's got them. I'm glad she's not squandering her gifts trying to do what I'm doing. And instead of the stupid competition aspect that can happen, I'm sure it never happens here, but it might theoretically happen somewhere. Instead of saying, how come they don't care about my ministry? Well, maybe they're not supposed to. Maybe God actually put a barricade up between what you're burdened about so that they would never be distracted away from what he wants them to be burdened about. It doesn't mean that what we do, if it's not, you know, applauded and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't mean it doesn't have value. It just means this. You don't have enough time trying to figure out why everybody doesn't share your burden. Just live out your burden. Just bless the, the Lord by saying, I know who I am. I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm not real sure what they are. I'm not real sure what they're supposed to do. But I know what I'm supposed to do. So I'm going to fulfill my part as this part of the body. And then you trust God with other people and you don't get sour while nobody's, you know, signing up on your list to serve. I'm going to get there. I'm just, I'm pausing. So let's just, let's, let's finish with some highly relational, non-confrontational stuff. Sound good? No, I'm being serious. <laughs> Great. You're already skeptical of my motives. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> this is easy. Beautiful unity is the next one. Beautiful unity. See, it's up there on the screen, right? One, two, three, boom. See? Beautiful unity. Family. This is what God's going for. How does he make it happen? 
by being our daddy, by being our Abba, by being our father. For through him, through Jesus, that's the capital H there, for through Jesus we both, all of us, me and the other guy, you and the other person, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That is such a simple statement, and most of us will zoom right past it. You see, before you came to Jesus Christ, this is tough, but this came out of the mouth of Jesus. Our Father was the devil. Did you know that? Jesus said that? Y'all know that's in the Bible, right? Jesus looked at a bunch of religious people and said, you're of your father, the devil. When Jesus came and ransomed our soul, he took us from that family of the devil and placed us into the family of God. And then when his disciples were getting delivered from the normal religious prayers of their day, they looked at Jesus one day and they said, will you you teach us how to pray? And he started out with our Father. That was not common prior to Jesus Christ. What Jesus was saying is that his Father was now our Father. And that you and I are not orphans. Now, so many of us in the room have experienced one level, one form, another of, of abandonment by parents. And it's, 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 it's heartbreaking. I mean, it's soul-crushing. And then the psalmist wrote, I think it's 2710, when my mother and my father forsake me, the Lord will take me in. And so we're not orphans anymore. And we have the ability bought with a high cost of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to come in with full, unmitigated access as Christians to the presence of the Father. That we literally can come to God the Creator and we have the relational, and it's not privilege isn't even the right, the unspeakable privilege, immeasurable privilege, privilege of saying to God Almighty, we can say, Father, See, that makes us a family. We have the same Papa, the same Abba. Now, moms and dads, let me ask you something. How much do you love it when your kids fight with each other? I don't even have to apply that, do I? I think he takes great pleasure how good and how pleasant it is when the brothers and the sisters abide, dwell, hunker down, do life together in unity. I mean, I love it when my my kids are older now, but when my kids were little, and every now and then we'd see this amazing moment of selflessness and generosity between Alicia and Landon. And Amy and I would say, (gasps) the Holy Spirit has come. I just know when the Lord sees you, I'm I'm just, I, I don't even think I can finish this appropriately. When the Lord sees you, Making up your mind that no matter the cost, as long as it's not a a sacrifice of of core Christian values or beliefs, but no matter the cost, as much as it depends on you, you're going to make peace with all people. The Lord just takes a step back, if I can say it that way, and says, now that's what I've been looking for. That's something I can bless. Psalm 133 says that's where the blessing rests, on that unity that God has actually commanded a blessing that will fall upon unity 
that can't be experienced apart from unity. There is a specific blessing, a component that comes from the Father, an endowment that only falls upon people committed to unity. Then we are the family, verse 19. Worship team, come on up, please. That'll, that'll force me to quit. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You belong. I'm just going to unmask the devil. He tells you you don't belong. He tells you that, you, you that you're not welcome. He tells you that nobody cares. He tells you that you don't fit in. He tells you that you're different, that all these great things I'm saying about God applies to everybody but you. He is a liar. He has always been a liar. He will accuse you and he accuses God to you and accuses you to God. He's a liar. We're family. You're not, a, you're not an alien or a, a stranger. It's your fellow citizens. Where? With all of the saints. That's a reference to the saints in your Bible. The Old Testament, those guys that are revered. Moses has nothing on you except that he's in the presence of Lord. Um, Joshua has nothing on you. David has nothing on you except that they are in the presence of the Lord. You'll be there one day. But they don't have anything that you don't have. You actually, quite frankly, have more in your life now than they had then. Because you have God in you. They only had God with them. And so your action, Paul's going out of his way to say, we're one, we're one. But then he says this, and I'll just just quit here. I don't want to quit, but I'm going to quit. He just says... um, you're members of God's house. Household of God reads a little clinical, but the, the substance of that is, is that, like me, I'm, I'm the head of my household. God's the head of his household, and we're part of it. So he has opened the doors. He has welcomed us in. This is the place where we don't have to sit on the front porch waiting for an invitation. Why? Because it's daddy's house. It's papa's family. So no matter what luggage you brought with you, he says, come in. No matter what your crimes are, your regrets, your failures, your heartbreak, he just looks at you and says, well, come in. It's me. Come on in. Just come in. No matter how much you feel like you don't belong with the other people who are already in, the Lord says, oh, just come to me then. Just just come on to me because what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you deeper into my household and you're going to find out that they're just like you and you're just like them because they all call me daddy. So we don't have to lose our individuality. But friends, we don't have to live under the deception that says we're so different, we're so distinct that we don't belong. The kingdom of God is filled with former violators. The one condition that is required of every person before they even get into God's family is that you have to admit that you can't earn it and you don't deserve it. And that admission is just simply saying, I'm a violator. I've sinned against God. I can't earn it on my own. I know I've failed. But the Lord Jesus loved me, came for me, lived the life that I was supposed to live that didn't, fully satisfied the Father in all points, sacrificially laid down that life as a substitute for my sins, took that life back up from the grave, having fully paid it all, went to heaven, he's interceding, he's praying for you right now, and he's going to come back and get us. That sounds like a win. And it's such a win that when we look at all the other people for whom he has accomplished all of those things, there's an inner compulsion to say, all I want to do is move closer to them.
All I want to do is bless them. All I want to do is honor them. All I want to do is to eagerly pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So we're moving closer together, not further apart. The closer we all get to Jesus, the closer we all get to each other. It's like spokes on a bicycle wheel. The closer they get to the hub, the closer they get to each other. That's what he's doing in this generation. That's what he's doing in this house. And that's what he's doing in you. And he's asking us to increase our yes today. Would you stand to your feet with me?